So as I mentioned, I love Advent. I love Christmas. I love this season. In fact, I have to confess, I actually started listening to Christmas carols back uh, about Halloween, I think it was. And uh, some of you are like, you can't do that, you can't do it. I have an excuse. Actually, I'd like to do it all year round, but I don't think my family would appreciate that so much. My excuse is that I knew that we were going to do, be doing a series of messages leading up to Christmas, so I had to listen to the Christmas carols to kind of get my, you know, you like that? Hey, we can all rationalize very well. I actually do love the Christmas carols, and, and I also like walking through the mall. I don't know if you've been to the, the mall at Short Hills and looking at the different Christmas decorations, and a couple of them went up uh, literally right after Halloween, and then a, a week or so later, they started playing the Christmas music. Nordstrom's, interestingly, I noticed this the first time last year, and they did it again this year. They had a big sign up that says, we celebrate only one holiday at a time, and we're celebrating Thanksgiving now, and whatever comes after that, you guys can wait until the day after Thanksgiving. I thought it was a little bit cheeky, but hey, it caught my attention. It made me think about Nordstrom's, and I just gave them some free airtime here as well. <laughs> if you have not been to the mall at Short Hills this year, you got to go because the entire mall, slight exaggeration, has been taken over by this like huge ice palace. They do this every year, but this year it's a little different because Elsa and Anna are there in the ice palace, and the line to see Elsa and Anna, somebody loved that, there you go, hey, I knew there were going to be kids here. The, the line to see, sorry mom, the line to see Elsa and Anna stretches from the middle of the mall all the way out the door, and it ends somewhere over in Livingston, I think. It's like thousands upon thousands of kids are lined up to see Elsa and Anna. If you don't know who Elsa and Anna are, you have not seen the movie Frozen, which is Disney's latest attempt to take over the world. And they seem to be succeeding, or at least taking over the hearts and minds of our children. Fun movie, you gotta see it. My favorite character is not Elsa and Anna. My favorite character is Olaf, and I think he's kind of cool, and... Uh, a lot of fun. You got to see the movie. It's, it's definitely worth the time to see that. But as we're standing there in the mall and we're just looking at this line stretching on into eternity to see Elsa and Anna, I pointed out to my wife and one of my daughters that the line to see Elsa and Anna was a whole lot longer than the line to see Santa Claus. And I thought this showed, you know, an interesting change in our society and, and uh, what had happened there. And then my daughter, who's rather intelligent, points out to me and she says, actually, Dad, that line that you think is a line for Santa Claus, that's actually the exit. No one's in line there. They're all in line to see both Elsa Anna and Santa Claus in the same line. And so your th conspiracy theory is not going to work here. And thus went my illustration that I was going to use this morning to talk about different things that were uh, trying to take over the world, like Disney. But in any case, if you haven't seen Frozen, it's a really great story, definitely worth seeing the movie, and uh, just kind of a fun sort of a story. This morning, I want us to look at another story that is uh, hopefully equally as familiar to you as the story of Elsa and Anna and frozen, and that's the story of Jesus' birth. And uh, you may have read it, heard it, seen it portrayed hundreds of times, or maybe only once or twice, maybe never before. But I want to do it a little bit differently this morning. Rather than taking the Christmas story, rather than taking the story of Jesus' birth in isolation, I want to set it in the midst of the big story of the Bible, sort of the grand narrative of Scripture that begins in the book of Genesis when God created the world, sweeps 
all the way through history and ends at the end of the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. Because at least for me, doing that gives me a fresh perspective on a very familiar story. And it brings out for me, and I hope for you guys as well, some aspects of the Christmas story that perhaps we haven't seen before. And we're going to do that by looking at six days that changed the world. So Genesis chapter 1, right at the beginning, Moses writes and he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created, if you continue to read in Genesis chapter 1, God created a beautiful world. He created a perfect world, flawless world with everything in it that anybody could possibly need. It was as if a divine artist had painted an incredible masterpiece. That's what God did when he created the world. And then on what I'm calling the first of our six days that changed the world, God did something amazing. God painted himself onto the canvas. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move on the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We, you and I, are God's self-portrait. He created us. He designed us. He painted us into his masterpiece in order to show the world what he was like. We look like him spiritually. And we are his representatives in the world that he created us, that he created. He put us here on the earth to care for his creation. That's what he did on that first day that changed the world. Before that, it was different. After that, huge change when God painted himself into the picture. And although when God created the world, it was perfect, it's absolutely not that way now. It's broken. If you went shopping on Black Friday, you know the world is broken. People clawing over one another just to get a cheap TV or a, you know, a extra pair of socks. I, mean, I actually saw that people were fighting over underwear in one store and you know that sort of thing. 2008, in 2008, people trampled to death somebody at a Walmart as they're trying to break down the door in order to get in and to get some, you know, whatever it is that they were looking for to shop. You read the news stories. The world is broken. Every time that you have an argument with somebody, every time that somebody hurts you, every time that you get sick, it's a reminder that the world is not the way that God created it to be. And that brokenness began on the second of our six days that God changed, that changed the world. And on that day, Adam and Eve, who were the first human beings, decided that rather than trusting God, rather than depending on God, they were going to act independently of him and trust themselves rather than him. 
God created us to be contingent beings. He created us to depend on him. He created us to look to him to meet our needs. And we, although you and I weren't there, we would have done the same thing. We decided that we knew better than he did and we were gonna do things our way rather than his way. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and the world has never been the same since that happened. By that one act of disobedience, we broke the perfect world that God created and all the problems in our environment can be traced right back to what happened there in Genesis chapter three. We broke the perfect world God made. We damaged our relationships with one another. We damaged our relationship with God and we tarnished his image. We messed up his self-portrait. Before that happened, people could look at us and they would get a good idea of what God is like. Not a complete idea, a limited idea of what God was like, but it perfectly reflected who he was. Now people look at us and they may get an idea of God, who God is and what he's like, but they also see some things that absolutely do not come from God. When they see strife between people, when they see people hurting one another, when they see lying and cheating and stealing and murdering and so on, those don't reflect who God is. That's not what God intended when he painted his self-portrait into this masterpiece that we call the world around us. And so there's a challenge, there's a problem that has to be overcome in every good story, whether it's Frozen or whether it's the storyline of the Bible, every good story somewhere near the beginning has a problem, has a challenge that has to be overcome. And the question is, what is the hero going to do to overcome that challenge? Now, most of us, when we hear a question like that, we think of ourselves as the heroes. And the question is, what are we going to do to take care of the brokenness of this world? But if you look at the main storyline of Scripture, we are absolutely not the heroes of that story. God is the hero of the story. He's the ultimate hero. And so the question is not what are we going to do to remedy the brokenness of this world. The question is what is God going to do to rescue us from this broken world? How is he going to respond? And after, an Adam, after Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, when they chose to eat that, eat that forbidden fruit, God turned to the serpent who had tempted them to trust themselves rather than God. And he said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly, you'll eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And on the surface, God seems to be saying that there's going to be animosity between snakes and human beings. And for most human beings that I know and for every snake that I've met, there is animosity between them. I've never actually asked the snakes, but they don't seem to be too happy to see us, certainly no more happy than we are to see them. So at that level, yeah, there's some animosity between human beings and snakes, but God is taking this to a deeper level. There's something behind that. And if you read through the rest of Scripture, you find out that the serpent is actually representing Satan, the deceiver, the devil, the enemy of God. And the offspring of Eve, the offspring of the woman, 
is not simply us as human beings, but it's actually the ultimate offspring who we find out later in Scripture is the Messiah, the Savior, the one whom God is promising right here, right at the beginning, right on this second day that changed the world, whom he's promising is going to come and rescue the world from its brokenness. Now, if you're reading Genesis chapter 3 for the first time, you don't see all of that, but you can see it sort of retrospectively looking back that God is making a promise here. It's not clear exactly what he's going to do, but in the midst of the darkness, there's a ray of hope. God is promising, he's prophesying that he's going to do something to rescue us from this broken world. And if you read through the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures or what we know as the Old Testament, you see, in a sense, the same story repeated over and over and over again. Next thing that happens in Scripture, brother kills brother, Cain kills Abel. And that, you know, that's the very next thing is murder, one brother murdering another. And over and over and over again, we, again, because we've got to put ourselves in the place of the people in the storyline, we, over and over and over again, choose to disobey God, trust ourselves rather than him. So he gave us the Ten Commandments, and within about two hours, it seems, they had figured out a way to violate just about every one of those Ten Commandments. And over and over and over again, God sent his prophets to call people to repentance to say, turn from your disobedience, turn back and trust me. And they, sometimes the people seem to do that for a short period of time, but over and over and over again, the people chose not to listen to God, not to trust him, and turned back and went their own way and reaped the consequences of that. But also, all throughout history, you see a few people here and there who looked at the brokenness of the world and said, this is not how God created it to be. This is not what he intended. And they cried out to God for a rescue. They cried out to him for deliverance. And over and over and over again, God forgave people. He was gracious. He promised over and over and over again that he was going to send someone, the Messiah, the Savior, the offspring of the woman from Genesis chapter 3, who is going to rescue us from this broken world. And we saw one of those promises a few minutes ago in that video. It's found in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah writes, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. For to us, a child is born, and he's going to be the savior of the world. And you got to ask yourself the question, why in the world would God send a child, a baby? If I wanted to rescue the world from all its brokenness, I'd send an army of angels to come and just nuke the place and clean it up and, and fix it up. Why would God send a child? If God's goal were to conquer the world by force, I think he might have sent an army. 
But his goal wasn't to destroy the world. His goal wasn't to destroy us. His goal was to win our hearts and to win our minds. He wanted us to worship him willingly. He wanted us to love him freely. He wanted us to trust him because of who he is, because of his character, because of his love, because of his faithfulness, and because of his greatness. So he didn't send an army. He sent a baby because he knew that was the best way to accomplish his cosmic rescue plan. And that baby was the offspring of the woman who was promised back in Genesis chapter 3. And so when God, when the time came for God to launch his cosmic rescue mission, he didn't really do it with a lot of fanfare. Baby was born in a small town that not too many people lived in. He was born to a working class couple and they weren't even married at the time. And when he was born, his first crib was a feeding trough in a stable with a bunch of smelly animals. And although very few people knew about it, this, this third day that changed the world was the most significant day in the last many thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And Luke records what happened, uh, some, some of what happened on that day. That evening, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people, because today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He's the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly, a company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. And what happened on Christmas Eve was not that God painted himself into the picture again. He had done that already. He had already painted himself into the picture once before. This time, rather than painting himself in, rather than creating a representative, he himself stepped out of eternity into time. The author entered into the story he was writing. The creator entered into his creation in the form of a human being, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He entered into his creation to launch his cosmic rescue mission. And although almost nobody knew it, this obscure baby was the creator of the world. The shepherds knew it. Mary and Joseph knew it. The animals, I suppose, knew it. Few other people might have known it. But hardly anybody knew this. And the, the irony is that this world-changing day occurs and it happens in relative obscurity without a whole lot of fanfare and yet the world would never be the same after that happened. Dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament were fulfilled that day when Jesus was born, including the one that God had promised that an offspring of the woman would be born who was ultimately going to defeat Satan and good would triumph over evil. God had entered into his creation and everything was about to change. And for the first 30 or so years of Jesus' life, 
he was a relatively unknown carpenter. And if you were here last week, you heard my good friend Thomas talk about a three-and-a-half-year period, uh, three period of Jesus' life and ministry when, when he went from being a relatively unknown carpenter to perhaps the best-known figure of his day. And more and more and more people followed after him. They gathered to hear him speak. And at the height of his popularity, at the height of his ministry, his followers were thinking, yes, this is the one. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior whom God has promised to come and to rescue us and to heal us and to restore our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And yet at the height of his popularity, at the height of the expectation, he was killed. And that was the fourth of our six days that changed the world, the day when Jesus was crucified. And the prophet Isaiah had actually predicted Jesus' death hundreds of years earlier. And he says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he didn't even open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And you read that and you realize that was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And yet if you look at it in light of the events surrounding Good Friday, the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion, you realize God knew exactly what was going to happen ahead of time. It's uncanny when you see that, except it's not uncanny because we're talking about the creator of the universe here, the one who's outside of time and sees all of time as an instant. So, of course, he's able to tell us what's happening in the future because he can see it all in an instant. And when Jesus died... It seemed like his mission had failed. It seemed like the serpent had crushed the offspring of the woman because he's dead. Now, we know what happened later, but if you're living it then, if you're living it then, all hope is lost. It seems like God's plan has failed and you don't know what to do. But then came the fifth day that changed the world, Easter Sunday. After predicting Jesus' death, Isaiah continued with a promise of his resurrection. Down in verse 10, he says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, watch this, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Isaiah is saying that the Messiah is going to prolong his days. He's going to see the light of life. And that promise, that prophecy, that prediction 
was fulfilled when Jesus rose from the dead. And so while three days earlier, it looked like the offspring of the woman, it looked like the baby, it looked like the Messiah had been crushed, no. Easter Sunday, we realize he'd only been bruised and it was the serpent, it was Satan who had been crushed at the cross. And so the cosmic rescue mission that was launched on Christmas Eve, that was launched on Jesus' advent, culminated on Easter Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. And we who are trusting in him, we who are saying the story of the Bible, the story of humanity in the Bible is my story. I've chosen to trust myself rather than God. I've chosen to disobey God. I've chosen to go my own way and try to live independently of him. And all it's resulted in is brokenness and pain and sorrow and suffering. We who will say that and then look to the crucified and risen Jesus and say, he died for my sins. He died for my iniquity. He suffered in my place. He was punished for me. When we see that, when we're trusting in him, we get to enjoy the same kind of resurrection life that he has, the same triumph of good over evil. We get to have a restored relationship with the creator of the universe because of what Jesus did on Easter Sunday. But the story doesn't end there because there's still one more world-changing day. But that one hasn't happened yet. Every time you take your kids to see Elsa and Anna, and they whine because the line is too long. And, and <laughs> gotta love it. And every time that somebody hurts you, and every time that you get sick, and every time that you read about a war or whatever it is that's going on, we're reminded over and over and over again of the brokenness of this world. It is not the way God intended it to be. Yes, we've been redeemed. Yes, we've been restored to a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. But this world is still broken, and we experience that brokenness every day. And it won't be fixed until the sixth day that changed the world. It won't be changed until Jesus' second advent. It won't be changed until Jesus returned. Because you see, Jesus went up to heaven shortly after his resurrection. And he said, I'm going to come back because I'm preparing a place for you. And I'm going to take you and you're going to get to be with me in that place forever. And when he does that, then the curse will finally be totally reversed. The brokenness will be gone and we'll live with him in a place that is essentially like the Garden of Eden, essentially the way God had created the world and intended it to be. And in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, the Apostle John, who is the author of the biography of Jesus that we spent so much time in this fall, the Apostle John writes about Jesus' second advent, about his second coming. And he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He'll dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. God is promising through John that when Jesus returns at his second advent, he's going to create a world that is perfect, where there's no more mourning, there's no more crying, there's no more death, there's no more pain, and we get to live with him forever in that redeemed, in that restored, in that no longer broken, but now perfect world that God is coming to create for us. And he'll live with us forever on that new earth. And John ends the book of Revelation, the last chapter, the last couple of verses in the entire Bible. He ends it with these words. He's here uh, referring to Jesus. He says, he, Jesus, who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming. John responds, he says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, I want you to return. I want you to, be, to come back because life in this broken world is not as you intended it to be. And I am looking forward with eager anticipation to the time when I get to spend eternity with you in that perfect world. And then he ends with this. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. We are all doing a lot to get ready for Christmas. We're shopping, we're decorating, we're cleaning, we're cooking, we're sending out Christmas cards, doing all sorts of different things. And those are good. It's fun. It's helpful. It's encouraging. It, it, it gives us a, a, a warm feeling, and, and it's a wonderful time of the year. But the question I want to ask you this morning is, in the midst of all of those preparations, what are you doing to prepare yourself spiritually? Because you can do all of those other things, and there's nothing wrong with them. They're quite good to be doing. You can do all those other things, but if we're not careful, they can conspire to distract us from what God ultimately wants us to be doing during this season, and that is turning our hearts back to him, looking to him, being more and more excited about what he did at his first advent, and looking forward more and more and more to his second advent. So what are you doing to prepare your heart spiritually for Christmas? I have a couple of suggestions. One, if you've got a smartphone, get the version or Bible app on it. It's the same thing, just two different names for it. Get that on your smartphone. They've got a whole bunch of reading plans, at least a half a dozen, maybe 10, 15 different reading plans that'll take you through the narrative of Jesus' birth both focused in the Gospels in Matthew and in Luke, but also some of them will go through some of the prophecies in the Old Testament as well. Great way to help focus and prepare your heart for Christmas and for, for celebrating Jesus' first advent. Another thing you can do, go to our website, renchurch.com, right in the middle near the top of the page, click on the link that talks about uh, daily Advent readings. There's a different reading for each of the days between today and all the way through Christmas Eve. Take you about five, ten minutes a day. 
some thoughts for the day, a Bible passage or two that helps you to focus, some questions that you can use for reflection, and even an example prayer that you can use to pray. Great way to prepare your heart for Christmas, either yourself individually or with your whole family. In my house, we've used these for a number of years now just to focus and prepare our, our hearts and to, to take some time out of our day and spiritually get ready for Jesus' return and for his coming at Christmas. So when you go to the mall, it is obvious how excited the kids are to see the characters from Frozen. Their excitement, they can't contain it. They're so excited. My hope and prayer is that as we get closer and closer to Christmas, we won't be able to contain our excitement for the opportunity that we have to celebrate the day when our creator stepped out of eternity into time in order to rescue us from a broken world that's broken by our own doing, not because we deserved it, not because we're the heroes, but because that's the kind of God he is, the kind of God who loves us, who is eager to forgive us, who is gracious and who is willing to sacrifice himself so that we could be restored to a right relationship with him. I want to take a minute or so now and just pray for us that these next three and a half weeks of Advent season will be the best three and a half weeks that we've had in terms of preparing and focusing our hearts and getting ready for Christmas. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for this Advent season. I thank you for the so many promises that you made throughout Scripture that you were going to send your Son to rescue us, to save us, from this broken world. And I thank you that you did that on Christmas Eve. And Father, I pray that in the midst of all of the busyness, that we would make the time, that we'd be intentional about it, make the time each day to read some scripture, maybe to use Advent uh, readings, to do something to turn our hearts and our spirits towards you. And as we do, I pray that our anticipation of Christmas would grow and grow and grow, not just because of the presents and the songs and the trees and the lights and the decorations, but ultimately because it's when we, as your children, get to celebrate the birth of our Savior and our Lord. We pray in his name, amen. Hey, I'm so glad that you guys came out this morning, and I hope that you have a wonderful week.